Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. Sadly, not joined by Andre today, but I'm thrilled to be joined by a fabulous guest, Cal McClanahan, who is the executive director of National Security Counselors, a nonprofit public interest law firm that specializes in one, national security law, information privacy law, but also the topic we're discussing, which is classified documents, the Mar-a-Lago search. Um, now, Cal is also an adjunct professor at GW Law School and AU's Washington College of Law. I took his Law of Secrecy class, which has certainly prepared me to talk about this topic. Hopefully, I won't get uh, cold called today. Uh, nonetheless, Cal, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's always good to see a student make big with his very own podcast. So I'm happy to help whenever I can. All right. Well, wonderful. Let's uh, let's start pretty broad. I want to kind of walk our listeners through this search. Uh, what has actually gone down? A lot of people have called it a raid. And I think first and foremost, this wasn't a raid. It was the execution of a search warrant. So can you kind of let us know what the difference is and why it's, it's a, a significant difference? Well, the term raid is sort of colloquially something that you do when you're storming into the drug den in the middle of a deal or something like that, it tends to denote uh, violent action, the sort of no-knock warrant type of thing of, you know, all of a sudden the guy looks up and they're after hearing a giant bang and there's no armed officers standing over him. This was nothing like that. I mean, technically speaking, sure, you can call it a raid and be legally, technically, semantically correct, but you're missing the entire flavor of what happened here. This was something where the FBI, uh, with the DOJ, with the Attorney General signing off on the application, requested a warrant to search Mar-a-Lago, the former president's primary resident, from a magistrate judge in the Southern District of Florida. They filled out an affidavit. They filled out an application. They showed that there was probable cause to search this location. They spelled out what the crimes were that they thought they would find evidence of. And then they went, and because it was the former president, because there was Secret Service there, they informed the Secret Service uh, in advance. They gave them a heads up and said, we're going to be coming in. The Secret Service opened the doors for them, but the men with the warrants and then we got, you know, this is above my pay grade. This is an FBI matter. And they didn't even do the things that we've come to associate with FBI searches recently. They didn't wear their blue blazers. They didn't have... Uh, any media coverage. They tried to keep this quiet, not to hide what they were doing, but to avoid it being a media thing. They went out of their way to be respectful of the privacy of the former president and did everything they could to avoid it blowing up into the circus that it has blown up to due to his actions, not theirs. Absolutely. And so I think that's a very important distinction to draw that this was a, an attempted under the radar execution of a search warrant. This wasn't meant to be this kind of big public spectacle that it now is. And so uh, nonetheless, the FBI went in, they have retrieved certain documents, boxes of things. Um, but what do we know that they were really looking for? What type of information? And really, I guess the big question is, why did the FBI need to go in? What is so important about classif classified information or about other types of information like presidential records. And, you know, why can't the president have this info, the former president, I guess? 
So you've given me about 12 different questions all in one breath. So kudos on that. You did learn something from my class. Sorry, Cal. I think it's best to sort of start with the last question first here. And I'll sort of work my way meanderingly through all of your questions. And if I miss one, please point it out and I'll come back and talk about it. The last point you made, the question was about the presidential records. You know, why is it important that, that we have presidential records? The Presidential Records Act, which stick a pin in what I'm about to say, if not a criminal statute, we'll come back to that later, was a creation of the post-Watergate era. Prior to Watergate, uh, for most of the country's history, presidential records were considered the personal property of the president. And presidents, when they left office, would take their records with them. They would often donate them to whatever school they went to. There would be a special Woodrow Wilson wing of his college library with all of his records, something like that. And right around the Eisenhower administration, the public idea of the importance of records started to coalesce around the president's records. Now, they didn't come out and say, well, these are gift our property. They encouraged presidents to give them to the government, which is why there is an Eisenhower presidential library that is administered by the National Archives. There is a Kennedy presidential library. And then Richard Nixon comes along. Richard Nixon has Watergate. Richard Nixon is leaving office, and he has no interest in his records going to the government because they prove that he was Richard Nixon. And so he fights them on this. And so there was a predecessor statute to the to the PRA that I won't get into the name of because I've honestly forgotten it. About five different words. After a whole bunch of Supreme Court fights over the records, Congress goes and makes the PRA, the Presidential Records Act, and it says, full stop, a record created by the White House or anyone around the White House it is a presidential record. It is the property of the U.S. government. If the president wants to deem something not a presidential record while in office, he can, but there's a whole process he has to go through. And he has to uh, ask the advice of the archivist. He has to then inform Congress before he can destroy these records. But bottom line, barring all that happening, things that are meaningful, which is a pretty broad class of documents are the property of the government. And as soon as he walks out of the office at 1201 on inauguration day, the archivist takes over. So as I said before, the PRA is not a criminal statute. It is a civil statute. It is an administrative statute. What it does, though, is by declaring that these records are government property, it triggers the other laws that govern the mutilation and destruction and theft of government property. And that's where one of the first laws comes in that Mr. 
Trump was accused of potentially violating in the search warrant, which was 18 U.S.C. 2071, which is all about the theft, mutilation, removing from government control, however you want to imagine that, of government records, records that were stored within public office. And so these are of interest to historians, these are of interest to uh, academics, these are of interest to future presidents, you know, to know what records were created by their predecessor. So that's why those are important. And that's why that is the first crime is triggered. Then you move on to, well, what about the classified records? Well, that brings up a whole different can of worms. Because, uh, first of all, the fact that there were records there that were classified is not determinative for why him having them was criminal, even without the 2071 problem. Because the Espionage Act, which was the citation to 18 U.S.C. 793 that was listed in the warrant, does not require that information be classified. Do you remember what it what it has to be? Well, so the interesting part is when you look at you know the media sources, they were talking about oh, it's classified, but you know the president can declassify it, blah blah blah. But and we'll talk about declassification versus classification. Uh, but what people fail to mention is national defense information and how that's separate from classified information. But so so Cal, let's talk about national defense information that I want to circle back to really how classification works and then go, dive into declassification. Okay. Uh, so go ahead, NDI. So na- national defense information is the term, as you correctly said, that you ha- you you're, it's governed by the Espionage Act. You can't take it, you can't sell it, you can't give it away, you can't disseminate it. And the reason that it doesn't say classified information is that the Espionage Act was written in 1917. There was no concept of classified information in 1917. Uh, the classification system didn't come about until around World War II. And so you have this idea of information that is relevant to national security, relevant to our military forces and stuff like that, is super secret. The full definition of national defense information is helpfully information related to the national defense. That is the definition of the NDI. The menu at the cafeteria at the PX at a military base is technically national defense information. And there are a few steps to the espionage act beyond that. You have to have reason. You can't be prosecuted by giving away NDI that everybody knows already, but you can be prosecuted by giving away NDI that you could have known that it could be used to the detriment of the United States. And that's a really broad category. So even if he did wave his magic wand and declassify all these records, which, as you said, we'll get back to that later, that would change their status as NBI. And so he could have declassified every single one of them with formal memos and still be guilty of a violation of the Espionage Act for taking them home or giving them anybody. Now, the crime that he would get out of if he declassified them all was 18 U.S.C. 1924, which was one of the statutes not listed on the affidavit. And that is because that is a statute that governs classified information. That is something that a lot of people plead down to 
mishandling classified information. That's what we got David Petraeus on. And that, to me, is the most karmic of all the statutes <laughs> because it was a misdemeanor. When I taught you, I pointed out this was a misdemeanor that people said down to. I called it the classified information misdemeanor. Well, in 2018, Donald Trump called, uh, signed a law that made it a felony. So he has now enhanced the penalty for the thing that he is going to be charged with. So that's amusing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty ironic uh, that that you know, his stroke of the pen caused the actual law that he may or may not have violated at this point, you know, to be even more severe. But so let's, um, we talked about classified versus NDI. I think it's a very important distinction that our listeners need to know of. Um, but let's talk about the classification system, a uh, construction of executive orders. Um, and so, as you said, you know, he could very well have declassified these documents. And, um, but before we talk about how declassification works and whether or not he can just, you know, broad stroke declassify, how does classification work? Who's in charge of it? And whether, you know, why classified documents need to be, particularly when they're, you know, very sensitive, need to be stored in particular facilities, not just the former president's home. So the middle question is the easiest. Who is in charge of it? The president. You know, full stop. Uh, the classification system, as we understand it now, is wholly a creation of executive order. It has been found by several courts, including the Supreme Court, to spin out of the president's commander-in-chief authority under the Constitution. And prior to the classification system you know, and all these executive orders that govern it, the president could say, this is classified, this is declassified. There was no real process for it. It was just, it was. That is still the case. It doesn't generally happen that way, but it's still technically the case. You cannot have an agency or officer do something under the executive order that the president cannot do because the president wrote the executive order. And executive orders, while there are some dissenters on this, I don't happen to be one of them, and I think they're mistaken, executive orders cannot bind presidents because they are designed to be a delegation of presidential authority. But the way classification normally works is it is determined by someone in the executive branch to be a threat, to, the dissemination will be a threat of national, to national security. It is, will cause damage to national security, will cause grave damage to national security, will cause exceptionally grave damage to national security. Those are the three levels, confidential, secret, and top secret. That's it. That's all there is to classified information. If it is anything other than CS or TS, it's not classified information. And that's why the Atomic Energy Act restricted data thing that governs the nuclear documents that people have been talking about, if not classification under the national security system. Once something is T, is the confidential secret or top secret, it can be classified, it can be declassified. There is a process that you go through to either classify or declassify something, again, unless you're the president. If you, if you want the president and you don't go through the process, Sometimes you run into trouble. Uh, this was what allowed uh, a charge against a, someone accused of violating espionage to, to falter and lose in court was because the expert witness demonstrated that 
the material had not been properly classified. And the government had hung their entire case on it being classified. And then they couldn't show them. They checked the boxes. But that, that's how it works. Uh, and that's your president. Again, if you're the president, you can say, this document is declassified, and you can turn around and hand it to somebody. And that's efficient. Unless it's governed by something else, like the Atomic Energy Act, which is actually a statute. So the best way to imagine the interaction between those two is like you have a treasure chest with, also with information in it. And there are two padlocks on the treasure chest. The first padlock is national security classification. And the second padlock is Atomic Energy Act restricted data. The president has the master key to the first lock. He can lock it. He can unlock it. He can destroy it. He can do whatever he wants to that lock without anybody questioning it. He does not have the key to the second. He has to go through the Department of Energy to unlock that. So at the very least, if there was any information in there that was deemed restricted data, he could have declassified it as formally as you could possibly imagine, and he'd be guilty of violating the atomic energy. So there are so many different ways that he could be hung out and dry for this that it's just a master class in the law of secrecy. I could teach my entire class on this case. I feel bad for your future students because they've got it in for them. All these fact patterns now that can emerge out of this. Um, so thank you for also bringing in the Atomic Energy Acts. Uh, that's an important, again, another distinction between kind of executive order classification systems versus this restricted data under kind of a, a congressionally mandated system whereby it's those protections. Um, but now, let's talk about declassification because it's a, a little complex to talk about how declassification works, but still important to, to figure out because there are certainly ways in which declassification can happen officially and the right way. But we've also heard in the media that, and you know, I think people from the, the Trump legal team have said that there's been this blanket declassification that the president said that these are declassified and therefore they're declassified. But Cal, I mean, that that's not how this works. As a legal matter, it does work in a vacuum. Like the president can issue an order tomorrow that says all information that is currently classified is hereby declassified. And that's it. Like that, 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 he has the authority to do that. As a practical matter, the fact that we have not seen any evidence of this is what is telling because. When a document is declassified, it is declassified. A document that is declassified, the copy held by President Trump can't be declassified and the copy held by the CIA be classified. And so whenever a declassification happens, it propagates throughout the intelligence community. There are Markers of this. There are memos. There are a heads up. This is now a declassified document. Copies of it have the classification mark struck out. And so the fact that no one has currently seen this suggests that it was not a formal order, like he wrote it down and it's somewhere in the memos. Because people would have tracked that and said, oh, well, I have to now 
informed CIA that their master plan for Iraq is declassified. The second part of it, though, is that, and I'm going to add a caveat here that this is an area where my interpretation of the law and the court's interpretation of the law sort of diverge. But at the bottom, of the, at the end of the day, the courts say what the law is, and they currently think that this is the law. The law that came about after Trump uh, went about you know, tweeting about things and showing things on camera and talking about things with foreign ministers, FOIA lost the Freedom of Information Act lawsuit to file to say, ha he has now declassified this. He, he tweeted about it. He, he, he tweeted out a picture of the Iranian nuclear facility. Therefore, all the information that was in that picture is declassified, and I want it. And the courts, most notably the Second Circuit and the D.C. Circuit, have said, no, you, you, we will not infer declassification from public release. I don't think that's the right decision with all respect for those judges, but that is their decision. And so currently, uh, the position is that there has to be some indication of a process. There has, they, they haven't come down and said that, you know, what I said earlier is wrong, that he cannot formally declassify something by saying it's declassified. But that, like, if he does that, it has to be recorded somewhere. You know, you, it, it, it's sort of the old riddle, you know, if a document is declassified in the woods, no one is around to hear it, is it really declassified? Now, that is where they have come down now. So they will not allow an inference of declassification. You have to prove that it was declassified. I have a feeling that if he were to make a claim that he declassified this in court as a criminal defense, that the courts would say, prove it. We're not going to take your word for it. We're not going to take the word of the other people. Now, if you can get maybe the former head of the CIA and say, oh, yeah, I knew about this order. Former head, John Bolton came in and said, yeah, I knew about this order. You know, then uh, it might send a chance, it might sway a jury. But it would be a very, very nuanced call. Honestly, I think what happened with him was, if I'm being the most charitable I can be uh, towards this idea that he had a standing order, without thinking that you know he's outright lying, and without thinking that everything he said was completely accurate, I would say that he's used to having his orders followed. And so when he tells someone to do something, he now thinks it's a standing order in his head. So he was walking out of the office one day. He was carrying a classified document. Uh, some uh, associate ran up to him and said, sir, you can't take that out of the office. It's SCI. And he said, let me alone. And they said, but, but sir, we have to keep this in the, in the SCIF. We have to keep this in the SCI facility. And he, if it's classified, and he says, okay, fine. Uh, from your point, or from this point on, everything that I leave with 
is declassified. Happy. And the guy realized that he did not want to be sent to Alaska by asking one more question and said, very happy, sir. And then that got around. And then they stopped bugging Trump about classified documents. I think that is how he thinks there's a standing order. Was he told somebody, just leave me alone. It's declassified. Get away from it. I don't think that would stand up as a standing order. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting kind of, and again, generous hypothetical uh, for uh, Mr. Trump. Um, so uh, that I mean, it's certainly interesting to kind of see how how that may play out when more information hopefully uh, comes out about how this went down. I think another important part of this uh, is the intent requirement uh, under uh, under these statutes. And so now I'm sure that the the president's legal team will maybe argue that oh, the president didn't know. That this was happening. The president had no knowledge that these documents were taken or they was carried out, or maybe someone else did it. But I mean, that's that can't be a, a very successful defense, in my opinion, Cal. So what what do you make of the intent requirement and the potential arguments made by uh, the former president's legal team uh, in that regard? So I think that any lawyer that tries to say he had a standing order that the things he took out were declassified and he didn't know anything was being taken out or was classified uh, at the same time would be sanctioned very rapidly uh, because those are completely mutually exclusive. The good news or bad news, if you're President Trump's lawyer, is that under most of these statutes, the intent is very, very generous. Uh, it is not that you knew that the document would be given to a foreign government. You do not have to intend to harm the United States. You do not have to give it to the KGB. Uh, 793E of the Espionage Act says basically you should have known that uh, it, it, it's called Cienter, S-C-I-E-N-T-E-R. And Cienter is sort of like Mintray, but it's not really. It's sort of a bigger, broader picture of mental state. And the future requirement is that you willfully took information that was national defense information and kept it and you reasonably should have known that it could be used. That's why they get leakers on this. When you leak something to uh, the New York Times, they can't argue that you intended to give it to the Russians. Uh, they don't have to. They just say that you know that the Russians couldn't read it because the Russians have a subscription to the New York Times. And that's all it takes. The 1924 classified information statute is basically is it classified? Were you authorized to have it? Did you have it? If the answer to all of those goes against the suspect, it, done. Like the, the only argument to that point is, well, I didn't know it was classified. Well, or I didn't know it was illegal to take out classified documents. I didn't know it was illegal to uh, do whatever it is I'm accused of doing, to, to store them in my basement. Well, that, 
there's so many people who would have told him this. And there's so many people that we know for some of these grounds did tell him this. Like, even if he did not know on January 20th that it was legal to take them, he knew when the archivist called him up. He knew when the DOJ came and talked to him. He knew when he turned over 15 boxes in January. He knew when DOJ came to talk to him again. He knew when they subpoenaed him. They can get him on 793E just for refusing to turn over the records and holding on to the records after the archivist's contact. Or at the very least, after the archivist told him, hey, there's classified information here, you're not supposed to have it. You can't say, well, I disagree with you. You know, that's not how it works. I'm sure every criminal in jail disagreed with the fact that he was being prosecuted. The, the joke from the, the, the line from Shawshank Redemption that Red was the only guilty person in Shawshank prison. Yeah, that, that's sort of where that is. And so that's where all these laws sort of interlacing and, and building on each other comes together. That not only was he told repeatedly more times than you or I would be warned, definitely, that this was against the law and he ignored it. But then that's where the third statute comes in that was in the search warrant, 1519, which was obstruction of justice. He he or at least his agent, his lawyer, signed a document in June saying that he had turned over all of the classified all the classified records. If they found one classified record in this search, he's guilty of obstruction of justice. And so there is not a way to wiggle out of this that is legal. I yeah, I, I couldn't uh agree more with you that was a, a fantastic kind of walk through how all of this is really quite grave uh, for the former president but also his attorneys and anyone else involved because it's not just likely the president that they're going after particularly if they're building a case they're going to try to seek out other individuals to increase their chances in such a case and so uh who else may be maybe prosecuted or investigate under this certainly the lawyers and any associates anyone who has maybe had a hand in this i mean what how far could this go I, well, I definitely would not want to be the lawyer who signed the declaration. I, I would, if I were that lawyer, I'd be on a fast boat to a non-extradition country <laughs> right now. But one of the things about 793E is that it's one of the few statutes in the, well, the few parts of the Espionage Act that hits both authorized holders, unauthorized holders, and recipients, third-party recipients. And so I read something that someone was fingerprinting the documents to see if they could see who had touched them. Assuming that's true uh, for the sake of argument, uh, that makes sense. You know, if he wanted, if they wanted to get to the bottom of where this information was going, even from a damage control perspective, they would want to know who he gave them to, who he showed them to. And at this point, this becomes almost like an organized crime investigation. Uh, 
as I would tag Pope at Ken White and say, it's almost Rico. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's obviously not Rico, at least that I know of. But this is, they're going to be, they're going to be going after anyone who had a same. They're definitely, uh, if they're smart, going to be going after the people who helped him do it. And I don't mean the GSA people who, pack, who carry the boxes to the U-Haul van and put them in the Marine one. I mean, uh, if one of his staffers was the one that told the GSA what box to put in the bus, if one of his staffers uh, slipped the documents into an existing box, if one of his staffers went and moved the boxes around in Mar-a-Lago so that they wouldn't be found when the guys came in June, you know, anyone who helped facilitate this and cover this up is facing legal exposure here. And if there's one thing we know about Donald Trump, it is that he has a zero concept of personal loyalty. And he will not hesitate to throw every single one of them under the bus to try and get out of trouble. Well, yeah, there's certainly kind of a lot to to wait for as we try to understand really how far this goes, whether or not the DOJ actually ends up prosecuting, because that's another story, you know, whether or not they, you know, take the step to prosecute, because that is just filled with a, a lot of political kind of consequences. Um, and so I, I'm curious if you think, how whether or not the DOJ would prosecute something like this. Um, this is less of a legal question, more of kind of just a, you know, maybe political or practical matter. If it were anyone who was not named Trump, they would have prosecuted him already. And I don't mean they would have prosecuted him in June or they would have prosecuted him in January, although they probably would have prosecuted him. They definitely would have indicted him the second one of them saw a top secret stamp in Mar-a-Lago. They would have had the grand jury warrant out for his arrest the next day. It's entirely a... I hesitate to use the word political because it's not a Democrat and Republican issue. It is a practical or real world consequences decision that is facing Mary Garland right now because he knows that if he prosecutes Donald Trump, he's prosecuting someone who has millions of people at his beck and call many of them in Congress, to set the country on fire, perhaps even literally. And you have to balance that against no one is above the law. Everyone is equal under the law. I personally think that they will go through with the prosecution just because that is what I would do, and I'm obviously very smart, so they would obviously do what I wanted. But in all honesty, it's sort of they're already there. The people who are going to set fire to the country are already setting fire to the country over the search. You know, at, at a certain point, you have to say, if they weren't willing to prosecute, would they have been willing to do the search? And I think that there is a very compelling sort of just psychological argument for 
given all the things that they're considering, given all of the weirdness and insanity that is going around in this case, I don't think Merrick Garland would have signed off on the search warrant if he weren't willing to see it through. It's a great point. So, Kel, I want one more question out of you uh, before we move on today. With It's really such a fantastic episode, a lot to kind of think about. And I'm sure our listeners were just thrown basically an entire course that I took uh, in the span of like 45 minutes. But So I want to end on this, Kel. Um, we, we, of course, know that classified information is, you know, important. It's, it should be safeguarded. Um, but there's also been, you know, a lot of calls on social media and the media, like traditional media that, oh, there's overclassification and maybe this information wasn't that important. But I mean, at the end of the day, you know, does that, does that really matter in the sense that it's not even from a legal standpoint, but from a national security standpoint, safeguarding our sources and methods, safeguarding certain information, whether it's nuclear, whether it's, uh, you know, conversations with foreign leaders, this information is important and it has to be safeguarded, right? Of course, you know, for all uh, for all of our listeners, you know, Cal does a lot of great FOIA work. He does a lot of great work with whistleblowers, right? Important work. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I I think you still believe in the system of, you know, ensuring that we protect and safeguard our, our state secrets. Yeah. I mean, state secrets are secrets for a reason. It, and it, it would be hard to find a person who was sort of knowledgeable about the issue who would say nothing should be classified. I think that the main complaint among sort of the middle of the bell curve, among the people who recognize that this issue is that it's over too much is classified. And maybe stuff is classified that doesn't need to be classified. That doesn't change the fact that there is a lot of stuff out there that needs to be classified because you know, it sounds like hyperbole, but you know, classified information is what keeps our uh, covert agents from being killed. It's what keeps our infrastructure from being hacked. It's what keeps our military from being ambushed. And everything from that on down to what's called the mosaic theory, which is you know, little pieces of information that put together can reveal something classified that is actually secret, uh, such as, you know, they uh, tried to classify a bunch of people's work who were spotting tail numbers on planes, and they all got together and they figured out that the planes they were seeing were CIA, uh, CIA flights to a black site in Poland. And that gave a bunch of people in the intelligence community uh, a lot of pause because it was real that they had a black sign in Poland, which caused uh, massive political ramifications with the Polish government. And so it is possible to say, yes, there's a ton overclassified. Yes, the Espionage Act is completely poorly written. There are so many problems with the classification of clearance system in the United States government that I could and do teach an entire class on it. That doesn't mean that there aren't cases where it matters. And more specifically, for these purposes, for anyone who has sort of just a basic concept of fairness, as inequitable as it is, when they go after the NSA contractor 
and the GF-13 at CIA and the FBI clerk for one of these violations, then the people in charge have two options. They can either say, that is unfair. We should, we should um, change that law. Or they should accept that when the same law is used against them, oh, well, you had your chance. Yeah. I mean, it's, I completely agree. And Cal, this has certainly been a masterclass in the law of secrecy, but really just a small component of it, because there's certainly other areas that we could have gone into. Uh, nonetheless, I really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your expertise and your insights with our listeners. Uh, for everyone listening, Cal is a great follow on Twitter, uh, National Security Counselors uh, is where you can find him. And of course, if you're a student at either GW or American Law School, take his classes. They're fantastic. So uh, once again, Cal, thank you. Thank you for having me.